Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. Uh, how are you? I'm <laughs> good. I was just lamenting uh, that I'm getting old and I'm traveling and it's no longer like my body just bounces back. But here I am, the day after some travel, I'm back on the air. <laughs> yeah. But then uh, from what I hear, a lot of artists start traveling more the older they get because they get invited for talks and, and mm-hmm. they want they want the to see the artist. Not just the I, Yeah. I think there are a lot of solutions to that problem we can discuss at some point. Maybe body doubles or, <laughs> you know, yeah, stunt I, I just did a, I did a Skype lecture last week uh, with the University of Michigan. Oh, okay. Uh, Lawrence Tech. And uh, it was okay, but it, it it's very indirect. So you don't have no, a feeling no. of the audience. So. It's the worst. It's the but, worst. But for, especially for you <laughs> as a performance artist, or mostly performance artist, um, yeah, it would be like giving away like my most prized possession. The audience is like the one thing that I care about the most. But, but right? do you ever think about that? The better your career goes, the more you'll have to travel. Yeah, the, the better yeah. your art career goes. Yeah. Yeah. Though seemingly the worse it goes, the more I have to travel. <laughs> Just kidding. But I don't know. Like it's not like it's not like it's like through the roof. But uh, yeah, it, you can it can quickly add up with lots of lots of little visits here and there. Because anyway. I've been surprised that every time we try to set up a, a time to podcast, you're really in another part of the world and uh, still managing to do this. But uh, it's a likewise. lot of travel now, huh? Yeah, likewise. I think, yeah, starting usually in the 1st of February until about the end of April, I'm usually traveling every week or the other week. This is becoming a pattern. Same thing for October to mm. October, November, that kind of those are Yeah, like so summer and Christmas are kind of, kind of quiet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's true for most artists, though. But do you uh, do you see yourself, if it's up to you, would you be traveling all the time or performing all the time? Uh, like, I always hate it on my way there, and then on the way back, I'm like, wow, <laughs> this yeah. is just incredible. No yeah. matter how small a thing is, and I just got back from a pretty small, like, non-art thing, but just, like, connecting with people, I think, is so energizing and so inspiring. Yeah, anyway. yeah. So if you were only doing things on YouTube, it wouldn't be the same. Yeah, and I think that's where maybe like I've let down the ideology of my youth, <laughs> you know, which is like I thought you know the internet would be this transmission device for everything. And yeah, because you you were first known for your YouTube pieces. Yeah, and then I did a lot of streamed performances actually that you know of course disappeared for the ages. Um, and uh, but the video yeah. of you with the cursors moving you around and the the transhuman yeah, yeah. dance recital um. all those things yeah i did all those things early. yeah those were what i was best known for and frankly i don't think i've ever superseded <laughs> that's where i was like saying like i think my career gets worse every year because like i choose to do <laughs> because i finished that work like vito Acconci finished masturbating underneath the gallery yeah. <laughs> in, like, in, in, in 1975 or whatever but, but you it, it's it's interesting because uh your job is so much about efficiency and all your knowledge of the internet and knowing and then still you, and also knowing that travel takes its toll on your body, mm-hmm. still you you prefer to do the in-person appearance. Yeah, physical still matters. And I think maybe that's a good segue into this <laughs> this week's uh, topic. But like, you know, being... Our, our hodgepodge gra- being, of topics. Our hodgepodge of topics. Yeah, today's like a grab bag of topics. We couldn't really decide. Uh, well, it, maybe I can, I can explain to the audience. I met one of our biggest fans. Uh, oh yeah Evan Roth who we're also both a fan of but he, I ran into him because it was Art Fair Week so everybody was in town and uh, Art Fair Week oh, in New York yeah yeah, yeah in New York like, oh it's so funny to run into you because I've been listening to you guys all the time and now 
see you in, you in person again it's really funny <laughs> but it, he i was asking him which episodes he liked and he liked the one where we talked about your new macbook and the meaning of art right next to each other <laughs> yeah so i thought contrast. this episode we could we we can talk about um some things that are on our mind this week which is art fairs because there was the armory and all the related fairs in new york mm -hmm. and uber because there's so much gossip about it and it just keeps getting crazier yeah and then i'm obsessed with wireless audio or whatever might be you want you want you want a better ha home stereo system <laughs> yeah something. yeah it's the last frontier so of, I, uh, I feel like our listeners yeah. would be good people to ask uh, they've been sending us a lot of field recordings so they probably also know audio so we'll oh, discuss yeah. it superficially but then i'm sure we'll get feedback like no don't ever get this <laughs> system get that system Oh. Super meta, though I've become much more of an audio snob. Anyway, we'll get to that. So yeah. where do we want to where do we want to well, start? Let's, let's start with art fairs and um, uh, it, there's a general sort of it, it's a obligation for everybody. Everybody has to do it. That the, the galleries have to do it because mm -hmm. if you're not there, you're invisible. Mm -hmm. uh, the artists have to do it. It's not the ideal environment to show your work, but all the eyeballs are there and right. the money is there. And the audience has to go because it's a terrible place to view art, but you can see so much and you run into people. And so well, I feel like well, nobody, maybe, nobody yeah. is like, oh, boy, my dream came true. I get to show work in an art fair. <laughs> well, I'll say there are two things. One is like, where did this thing start? I think is worth calling out, right? Like mm -hmm. art fairs haven't been around forever. In some ways they have as like the Paris Salon, right? That yeah, like maybe, one maybe we don't know. Maybe there were... The idea of an open market and and selling stuff on a market that's mm -hmm. as, that's the earliest form of commerce, and that's the closest thing to a definition, right? Which is that an art fair is just is really just an art market like mall, right? It's, and, well, it's it's the art market uh, at its most visible, yeah, and vulnerable, which is one reason to like it. I think you know the vulnerability yeah. is raw. <laughs> That's why it's so yeah. awkward to be there as an artist. Yeah, but it's if you've ever seen uh, auctions are the the other thing, but auctions, whether it's art or cows or uh, stereos it, or cars, they all have this musical aspect with an auctioneer. Yeah, and and open markets all have this sort of everybody oh, yeah. creates their own little world. Yeah, and so you can step into different worlds and paintings. I got paintings. Yeah, <laughs> step right up, three for one. Yeah. <laughs> What you want Instagram? You want to put it on Instagram? I got a, I've got a work that's a mirror. It's a mirror. The work is a mirror. It's got text in front of it. You could become the text. <laughs> but you know, like I yeah. think one thing that's vulnerable about it for the fairs is it's uh, for the uh, for the art galleries rather is it's the only place you know they, they're kind of standing there. They don't know if they're going to be well received or not. They they don't know who's a collector, who's not, and so you you yeah, as an artist, you're what? everybody's wearing suits, but you're like, is this a critic or a curator? <laughs> Am I wasting yeah. my time? Am I going to make some yeah. money? So you always have these sort of you know, and everyone's really tired. So shout out to the galleries and the assistants actually who put this stuff together because they are usually traveling from other countries and they have like one day to set up the whole. And it's not the usual schedule, right? They're used to being in control. But and some this of is the, like no, yeah, it's funny. It's not their usual schedule, but it's like you at some point the the unusual schedule is the is the most prevalent, so that <laughs> right. becomes the usual schedule. So. Right. It, it, I think that's part, maybe, I don't know, in in the good old days, maybe people went to one art fair every two years, and now it's seven or eight per year. So that becomes the usual schedule. 
Mm-hmm. And no one's even sure if it's a good idea, though. That's the thing. Like, I don't think I've never had a conversation where like, oh, yeah, we're going to kill well, it this year. They're it, always like, we think a, it might work. I, I thought this analogy was interesting that the, someone said there's no reason for grass to grow taller other than that one of the grass strands decides to become taller and takes takes the sunlight of its neighbor and then becomes a tree and etc. But they could do fine just being if everybody was equal height. So it's the same with art fairs. It's mm. like, well, we started one art fair, so let's start one in another city. No, let's start a bigger one. And they're really expensive to be... Just to explain to listeners, I, I'm i not sure what exactly what the prices are, but um, I had a solo booth at the Armory, but it was a small one. And I think that was... this was, with your with your Dutch gallery? Yeah, and that was already thirty to 35000 For the booth, yeah. For a small one. So a big... And that's also a solo booth, so it's a friendly price. So a big one must be a hundred to two hundred thousand. Uh, it's and, not two hundred thousand. And then at, at Freeze or Basel, mm-hmm. then it gets even crazier. So yeah, you imagine the, the the stakes. I was gonna say it depends on the fare. I think generally, like the most galleries can afford up to you know you know of your of that caliber. Like yeah, I don't I don't want to misspeak, but around like after fifty thousand, it starts to get into the blue chip only yeah. kind of category. Because if you're doing eight fares a year, just the amount you have to sell is yeah. incredible, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I know it's hit or miss for them, you know. So and sometimes they, and the fairs in general are underperforming. But there was this peak moment in the like, like mid, two years ago. Yeah, yeah, like right around the turn of the decade, like around 2010, 2011, oh, okay. 12. I think that's when they started to rise. And then they, yeah, like two years ago they hit a peak, and now everyone's talking about how people how are hard it is. Yeah, well, how hard it, it is. It, it's also, um, but it, it it really is a thing. Once one person steps up, the the rest has to step up. So if one person ups the game of the fair, then the other fairs have to become more uh, pricey but, and bigger. Yeah. And yeah, I just don't know who these ten people are that are buying all, <laughs> all the work. <laughs> so I did Armory. Was it last year? Or two years? Ago? Two years ago, I had like a special feature kind of section that I was a part of. But so that's the one thing is I, I because I'm not with a commercially successful gallery, I, I can sneak into fairs through uh, the special projects. That's the only way I'm ever in fairs, right? So, uh, uh, I was in I was at Armory and I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll do a performative work where I try and sell my work at the lowest possible prices. <laughs> Mm. And it's just kind of in a, in a way cheesy, but I was like, you know what? I because I don't really, I'm not really about this. Like, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to sit here for three days and like pull this off? So I, I thought I'd be in character and I'll sell like goods from my U Museum store in a discount bin, like I I got like from a Walmart supplier, and I'd like hawk this stuff off. And I had like a huge pile of stuff to sell. That and was I would with do the that. moving museum. Yeah, it was with these great people out of London, the moving museum. Yeah. Be like, you know, so it really was my painting, paintings, I got paintings uh, yeah. kind of moment. But what was really fascinating to me, the reason I said, who are these 10 people, is that by lowering the price, so the price points were like between 10 and $50. It was like, they were low, low price points. And I was like, I'm sure I'll sell out of all this stuff and it'll just be fun, right? I'll just make it fun. I'll make the cost almost like, for well, these people, you, it's like, you a, thought it's like, like okay, going if, into if a tissue. Average price, if average price is between 30 and 100000 then if you sell something yeah. for 10, it must sell really easy. Yeah, like this person will just like look on, you know, yeah, would just like shuffle through their pockets like the average fair goer and they'd find like enough money to buy my whole <laughs> project. Yeah. But what was really interesting is that people, 
uh, responded well to the work, but then they would negotiate the price. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd be like, it's 40 bucks. And then but they'd be it, like, I'll give you 30. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is, what, if I had said 400,000, would you say 300? It's a little 000? bit like uh, when you go to, when you've decided you want a good audio system. Yeah. And then you go to the stereo store and they all of a sudden start offering things for 10 bucks. You, you wouldn't be interested because you, you came there <laughs> to buy top quality. And right. there's no way, even if, if your work is top quality and maybe a hundred years later, they'd be like, oh, that was such a radical moment when Jeremy Bailey flipped the whole art fair idea. <laughs> and and, and that work turns out to be more valuable than the expensive paintings at the time. But yeah. the point at that moment, they're going there thinking, I want to spend a hundred thousand. I don't want to spend yeah, 10 yeah. bucks. Well, I think I just, I appealed to a different market, the haggler. <laughs> it was like, I could probably really like iterate and like get some, they're not appealing to this market right now, but it did make this, me wonder whether people are haggling over a hundred thousand dollars. There was this Dutch sculpture. comedian and they were talking about when Dutch people go on vacation and they love haggling and there will be a tiny kid in Indonesia who made a, a beach ball made out of s straw that he found at the beach and he spent a five days making it and it's 25 cents and they're haggling to get it down to 15 cents <laughs> <laughs> so awful it is terrible of course that's dutch humor for you a little yeah. tinge of dutch racism for our audience colonialism. <laughs> colonialism we're the good guys don't worry <laughs> yeah. uh yeah anyway i mean so i found i found that interesting and um what i also found interesting i thought a lot about Cure the, the different roles that you were, you were talking about it that you're at the art fair and basically nowadays people dress anyway so it, it, it's not as divided it used to be that a painter would wear uh, an overall with paint splats and a collector <laughs> would wear a suit and okay it's clear who's who yeah now those overalls will be on the wall as a work at the fair there's always one yeah. <laughs> and, and so <laughs> all the project. roles are ambiguous are you a curator yeah. slash collector are you a gallerist slash critic yeah so but but what I found interesting, it feels like critics are usually looking for something to complain about. That's the the mm. general mo is to prove that they are smarter than whatever is in front of them. Oh, it's a great chance for them to see everything at once. Be like, wow, the world really is bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> and and what I find interesting is that collectors are always trying to find something great. They're always trying to, uh, because otherwise, why would they go? They're not going to mm -hmm. go. There. If you're a collector, you're trying to purchase things, so you're trying to find. The, the nuggets between the, the, the trash. And so there's such a different attitude when you're going around trying to mm. find out, trying to find something great. And so for, I think for artists and critics, when you go to a fair, you're like, oh, I, this is too much to comprehend and my brain is just uh, exhausted and my eyes are hurting. And collectors are more like, it's like people going to a thrift store and they're trying to find something that other yeah. people didn't see. Yeah, 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 you're right. I wonder if that's true. So. I have, one bitter pill I have is I've never been invited to Miami and every year I'm like it's December I'm freezing cold in Toronto mm. <laughs> and I'm like how come my Miami invitation hasn't come along yet which is a sense of entitlement I have that you know but anyway I actually did show in Miami a long long time ago when I first started it but uh, I wonder whether that's true there because that's more of a party fair right yeah you know, people kind of yeah, just the go reason there. I'll never go yeah yeah because yeah, I, no, I know parties. but I'm because I've never been I'm just like and, and that's true of actually all art fairs where there are these exclusive parties that you can't get into. It's basically like there's a party you can't get into it. That's the format of the party. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we're going to set up 100 parties. No one can get into any of them. And we're going to see what happens. It's like a reality <laughs> show or something. 
You're going to have to know this person or that person. We're going to put 50 spoiled people in a room and tell them there's a better party somewhere else. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's horrible. No, uh, but, but... But I wondered whether it was true there. Uh, the positive thing of fairs in the end is that the... Let's say you have a, a show in a gallery somewhere. Most people will just see it as documentation. And at a fair, maybe there's 30,000 people. Yeah. That's a lot of... And they're, they're all specialized, so... It's an efficient way also to see a lot of stuff. Yeah. And at the same time, it's a terrible way. It, it, living in in New York, you get to see a lot of solo shows. Mm-hmm. So you get to see the work in its ideal environment. Right. Uh, the best way. Yeah. And no, then actually, going to a fair feels very cluttered and... Uh, so I'm I actually so I looked up I was just reading the you know the Verge before I was uh, before I got into this just ah, yeah. for like yeah they had pure an article about the fairs yeah. huh? and they did an article about the fairs which is to me like just stunning that a mainstream so the Verge is like for our listeners who might not know about it it's like a tech like blog it's probably the biggest one mm-hmm. like yeah uh, but right on the top right today it's like. Uh, the fairs in New York. We went to the fairs, yeah. And then there's Evan Roth's work. Uh, but then I open up the article, um, and Evan's work looks great. Don't get me wrong. But the photo they took, they have people basically eating in a cafeteria in front of his work. And it, it's work that I know from seeing Evan work on it and following him as an artist that I'm a fan of. Um, but then, you know, the, I don't know, the way they wrote this article, because they're not intelligent about uh, art, is they just had the artists speak. Like, so they have like, but it's direct verbatim. Evan, it looks like they didn't actually ask him uh, about his work, thankfully, because they have other great people, but it's just them, it's just them talking, but verbatim, like not summarized in any critical way. So it comes off as like, I don't know, like a, a really bad representation, but it's still amazing to see them on this mainstream site and I wonder whether well the Verge is all about the technology and its impact on culture so that in that sense that's how they do it yeah but I I wonder whether um, maybe it's like a a sign that uh, that this type of um, I don't know that it's about art and technology ultimately becoming more mainstream we've talked about this before maybe it'll never happen Mm -hmm. but it, it was just sort of surprising to see I think it has become more mainstream yeah. yeah okay well anyway it was yeah it was nice to see it on a mainstream kind of uh thing these people that you know we know are great like also jacob scatterwhite and uh you know uh yeah i don't know i was really proud to see evan on the front page because i i haven't said uh that's a dream of mine to be on the verge whenever anyone asks me like where you know what publication would you like to cover your work it's like fast company <laughs> the verge <laughs> like business weekly or something like it's some kind of legitimizing forbes thing would be nice. forbes yeah actually yeah. i i can't say but uh yeah uh, i have talked to people at forbes that's like another dream one but like being up at these in those publications yeah. for me is like a i remember hearing um What's that? The, the, the most famous radio host in, in Seinfeld in the comedians and cars, the curly guy. I was the curly, <laughs> the curly guy, and not on comedians. The shock jock from the nineties. The Howard Stern guy. Yeah, Howard Stern the, was, the Howard was on on the comedians in cars show, and they were both talking <laughs> about which praise meant the most to them, and whether it was mm. industry awards, whatever. And they both thought the Mad Magazine cover. That's what they hung in their office. That was both for them. That was the dream come true. Yeah, the Mad Magazine. Yeah, that's pretty big. That would be huge for me because that's the first magazine I ever read as as a child. Well, it's like also I, something first... you sincerely appreciate. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, but actually that was the my first subscription ever to any publication was Mad Magazine. Well, there you go. Yeah, so maybe that's our goal. But did you get to see Evan at the fair? And he, this work of his, maybe we could just Well, I didn't it. go to any of the fairs. Uh, oh, so I just ran okay. into him in the neighborhood. He Because he was doing around. something pretty ambitious. He was doing these streams of, um, I think, landscapes from all over the world, but in infrared, uh, mm-hmm. live to the fair, which is pretty ambitious, I think, for a fair to try and do anything live. Uh, yeah. Like with technology, is I would assume... Failure is is gonna it's gonna happen, and he probably knew it too. Yeah. I didn't I didn't read about that or hear about that. Maybe it's all perfect, but um, I assumed he'd have to be babysitting it the whole time. But anyway, it looks great. And then the, the economic impact of the fairs is that I don't know if the fairs increase the sales of art in general or if it just makes the owners of the fairs richer. I, I guess it's a lubricant for the entire art world. It's a yeah, yeah. I mean, anyway, there's a lot I of rent involved. That, that's for sure. It's, it, I'm, what I mean is that uh, the same way when it was the the gold rush moment in in Northern California, the mm-hmm. people who made the most money were the ones selling the shovels, not the, not the <laughs> right, people right, making right. the gold. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, the, yeah, we can guarantee you're guaranteed that the artists are not probably doing as well <laughs> in, in any equation, but. Uh, <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. Whoopsies. Sorry, guys. <laughs> we forgot about the artist. The cafeteria uh, made a lot of money, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we sold a lot of cappuccinos. <laughs> <laughs> the Perrier sales went through the roof. Yeah. Yeah, well, the cafes always make a lot of... Anyway, yeah, I, I don't know. The, the the kind of whole thing is a little bit is a little bit boring, right? Because, it, But it does reveal the ebb and flow, the cyclical nature of the art market, and so you can at least rely on it for that, right? And yeah. it also reveals, like I said, the vulnerability of this... And literally in the eyes, I love walking by a gallery and seeing a lonely gallerist with like just pleading for attention, like please, yeah. you know, like but we, we haven't I made mean, any sales. It's also great that the, the the my gallery upstream every time they do, so far every time they did the armory they sold out. So then it's just really happy and uh, it's a great yeah. feeling. So yeah, yeah. So there's yeah, but it's funny the economics of it. Like even if they sell out, it's it's still break even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the they, rent is so high. So why do they do it? Actually, that's a good question. Well, they might make a little more, but you know, there's the hotel, there's the shipping, there's the flight, and uh, but is installing. it just to make a contact to get, so that they can sell? I mean, yeah, room? it's it's extreme visibility because mm-hmm. it, whatever city you're in, it's just one city, and to open up a gallery in many cities is very expensive. So, in that sense. Right. And so one thing I heard that's interesting, and this is not a segue yet, but is that Berlin really exists as an art capital because of fairs in Europe. Because what started to happen in the 90s is galleries needed a place to store works for fairs, or maybe it was in the beginning of the early 2000s, store work for fairs in Europe because shipping was so expensive back and forth North America Mm. to Europe. So Berlin, because it had very cheap uh, rent, galleries could like... It was cheaper for them to open a gallery in Berlin and store the work ah, there so that it could be distributed to the fairs. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And this led... Yeah, well, this I, I remember going to Berlin in 2001. A friend from school moved there and the rent was so crazy cheap. It, it mm-hmm. was like... He was paying 200 euros a month for a 200 square meter apartment in a in really nice historical building. Mm. It's not the same anymore, but I remember how crazy... So I imagine if you're a New York gallery and you're paying it out the wazoo and then you go to Berlin and it's the price of a pair of shoes is the rent. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, so that enabled, though, this whole city. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the next and pretty much Berlin has inherited the, the, the title of art capital of Europe, right? Yeah. Too bad I didn't. I mean, it, on paper, it sounds perfect, Berlin. But there's two things that really are bad in Berlin. And one of them is the internet. They're really strict on torrents, and they, you can't watch mm. music videos on YouTube. So bad oh, internet, really? internet. And the other rules. is toilets, as I've said before. Toilets. Is well, the that as well. <laughs> and then the food situation is just not that great. So it. it oh it, yeah. I don't know why. The Germans I think can't right get their now, food Ath- act together. Right now, Athens is, I guess, the new Berlin. It's, it's very cheap. Are so, people saying they, that though? Like I haven't because I I don't know what's going on in 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 Greek in Greece. I think so. Athens. I think you can buy an apartment there now for twenty thirty thousand. But is anyone doing it? It's because everyone always says like. Well, it's my this friends city or that who city. live in Athens are saying that, so maybe they're promoting mm, it. But right. I think a Documenta <laughs> is doing a Documenta there, and so it's having mm-hmm. a moment. Okay. Well, let yeah. Hey, go go Greece, go Athens. <laughs> I, <laughs> there was see. a time in the in the nineties that a lot of net artists decided. Our new Berlin is Barcelona because it's by the beach and it's mm-hmm. nice weather and nice food. Yeah. But after a while, it just didn't stay. It fizzled out. Yeah. yeah, because it needs multiple streams. Like it needs the market. It, need, it needs all these things to line up together yeah. for it to work. Yeah. And that's what but, New York figured out. That's what London's fucking up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows? Anyway. The, the, the segue from the, the art world and the... Yeah, let's get and, into stereos. <laughs> well, we we were talking about art fairs, and then we were talking about Uber because there was so much ah, going on with yeah. Uber. So yeah, the it, rise it's and a similar falls. situation where mm-hmm. uh, there's a there's a a very strong upper echelon force that can then dictate prices and and. Uh, Oh, clever. I like how you did that. I saw saw how you did that. Yeah, so Uber, yeah, that's a really good comparison. Also, Uber seems to be, was built for the wealthy. (laughs) And there's like... Well, it was was built as a tool to give what wealthy had, but to make it... Yeah, to make it accessible to others. So let's say they made something for the 20%... To, uh, yeah. to make them feel like the 1%. That's a better way of putting it, yeah. Maybe that's what an art fair is, too, you, until you, you you actually try and buy the work. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but then, of course, you could always go to, the, always go to one of the lesser fairs and get <laughs> something yeah. from an emerging yeah. emerging artist. Not lesser fair, uh, I should say. Oh, who cares? It's lesser fair. Um, so, yeah, with Uber in the news this week, uh, well, last few weeks, right? It's been like... It's been a few months, yeah. The delete my Uber meme. But it, like every day there'll be something. Yeah, it started with the delete my Uber. But then... Well, it, it's it started... I think, first of all, everybody knows that whenever there's a company making a lot of money, other people will make less money. So the taxi industry uh, had right. to had to give in a lot because of Uber and which a lot of people are like well taxis were kind of an evil industry and those medallions the, the permissions to drive in a city were ridiculously expensive right. um, especially in Amsterdam the taxis were so expensive and so mean they treated you so horribly mm. there was well, a- New- I think of New York as the worst I remember in New York before Uber no, existed no yes because no. here's it the was thing. bad you, but Amsterdam would tr- was but you would get to maybe okay maybe it was worse than Amsterdam. But were you ever turned down? Like I, every cab oh, yeah. you'd hail, you'd say, "I want to go to Brooklyn." They're like, sorry, dude, I'm not going to yeah, Brooklyn. Yeah, right? no Brooklyn, maybe. no, no, no. Yeah, but it, there's also the thing where they had no motivation to clean up their cab or be nice or drive well because there was mm-hmm. no. They, yeah, I guess they would get a little bit more or less tip. But uh, the rating system in Uber is dangerous in the sense that someone can lose their livelihood over someone's mm-hmm. review. Right, right. But it's good in the sense that it keeps people, uh, it motivates them to have a 
to drive safe, to keep their car clean. And the reviews I, I are mean, two-sided, right? So the, yeah. you're being reviewed as well. Yeah. But the so thing, I, in, in Amsterdam, it, it escalated up to a point where it was really expensive. They wouldn't take you if they didn't feel like it. And, and they would give you <laughs> weird prices on the spot. And they... Right. I, I, I remember taking a cab and it was just so cold we had to take a cab and it was but a taking few a cab in Amsterdam is also silly right like in general uh, if you if you come it's especially if you city. come from another town and oh, it's okay. raining and and then yeah. you do this tiny ride and it's 350 and all yeah. I have is 20 euros and he says well I don't have any change oh god oh, and yeah. like well you're supposed to have change yeah. yeah and then it ends up it's, it's like a face off or whatever and they don't take cards at the time, no. But it, it escalated to a point where someone had a conflict about a price in a cab, mm-hmm. and he got beaten to death by the cab driver. What? <laughs> That's how bad it was. That makes it sound a lot better so than the, Uber. The, I mean, the, a lot gover- less worse. And the government started this phone number hotline that you could uh, tell on them, because it was just so crazy at some point. So That's just a funny. bit of context that, okay, yeah. the, the taxi industry needed a little... Mm-hmm. Improvement. Let's well, here, yeah, I think in any city, we've all been in the situation where the cab doesn't show up right at the end of the night. Like, <laughs> it's not like, and that's, it, they're not beating you to death, but like, you, it's, you're drunk, you're tired or something like that. It's late at night. You call and they just never show up. And then you call the dispatch office. This is like, maybe this is like, this is like talking about phones in the 90s or something, but that's mm-hmm. how it feels to me now. But then like, so you call back and they're like, oh yeah, we'll send a note to the driver again, see if they show up. But it's in the meantime, they've picked up other fares and it's like, the whole thing was just a disaster of from a user experience standpoint and so yeah like lyft uber all these companies kind of did come in and fill in a a need which was there was a terrible product they definitely improved the service i remember you couldn't even pay though like i mentioned did they take cards but yeah, you know, I often didn't have the right change, or the and they wouldn't yeah. take a card, or they'd refuse to take a card because then they have to pay taxes on it. There's like shady business going on all the time. Yeah, so it, it the the service improved so much that everybody immediately thought, oh, I love this. Uh, uh, what do you call it? A ride service or a mm-hmm. carpool service? And and you also think, okay, people are using their cars; they could take more. There's a lot of ideas at the heart of it that are good, but mm-hmm. then. The result was that it grew so fast that the 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 existing taxi service, which did offer benefits to its drivers, yeah, of uh, course. just just went belly up. Or it was really hard to survive, and the 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 ride sharing services and the modern gig economy doesn't offer any security, and so now we're in a world where. Yeah, that's if you if you have a bad reputation, you just happen to drive bad one day, you could lose your your whole. But it's not only that, I think it's also that Uber can come in and they can change the economic model without con- consultation because what the, the main they just have gist too of, much leverage. Yeah, mm-hmm. the main gist is that they don't um, they don't they don't consider their employees employees, they're contractors. And yeah. this actually is more than an Uber problem. This is a problem with at least in the United States with the way labor is organized, because uh, now, at, at this point, almost uh, more than two, one, more than one third, approaching like two thirds of the American population, in some, is so, in some way self-employed, right? Mm-hmm. And also, and people who are choosing uh, the sharing economy as their mode of self-employment are an incredible at incredible risk for being they're just so for, vulnerable. They're so vulnerable, yeah. And so, oftentimes, mm-hmm. people are cobbling together multiple gi- small gigs in the gig economy or the sharing economy. 
Um, and they're just under a lot of pressure. And you but, have these but conversations. All, all, I think all that everybody knows all that and still uses Uber. But there was a tipping point where people. But were do just people like, know? This is do so people, great. I wonder if people outside the United States know that this started to happen in 2008 after the financial crisis. That that's mm. when people started to take on sharing economy, like do the sharing economy stuff because they needed to make ends meet. Right? Yeah. They were losing their yeah, homes yeah, yeah. and stuff. Like there was an economic crisis that led to this new world, you know? Yeah, a technology breakthrough and an economic crisis. Yeah, the two yeah. combined GPS, <laughs> mobile phones, all these things. Yeah. But it, but there was it, everybody knows that when you use Amazon and when you use Netflix, someone mm -hmm. else is making less money. The traditional TV industry or the the journalists or whatever, right. they're all making less money because of the new avenues. So everybody knows there's a downside. But then there was a point where uh, Kalanick, the, the CEO of Uber, was on the board f helping uh, Trump advising, mm -hmm. something like that. And then people were like, oh, this is too much. And now he's he was in a fight with one of... Uh, a random Uber driver who was complaining to him. That seemed really stupid. Yeah, that seemed really and so, stupid. And, and then there's all these uh, sexual harassment cases in, in the company culture. And the company is called Uber. It's, uh, all the yeah. bad stuff is just... It, well, we always everybody knew. Everybody so knew every, it was bad, yeah, but now it's it was just, bad. Now it's just bad. Every, all, like, it, every week there's something even worse about it. It's, it's almost like... You, yeah, it's almost like you, you know that fossil fuels are bad... But then all of a sudden it turns out that the CEO went hunting and killed Cecil the lion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Cecil. Um, and it, yeah, but I think also one thing to note is that they had this growth at, you know, growth at all costs kind of mentality. And they weren't the only ones out there, right? So they just became, they would come into a city and they would just establish themselves and they would like break the law. I know when they came yeah. to Toronto, they just broke the laws. So they well, always yeah, had this every reputation. Every city in Europe, they, they it, it, yeah, it's like better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. That's the model, yeah. but in the extreme. So they, I think they have this company culture of ex all alpha males everybody and just alpha uh, male yeah. yeah it's a performance performance meritocracy yeah right. and so oh, it, sorry i think they they stimulate very weird solutions where you just say well we can't really get permission in this town but if we videotape the lawyer uh, going to a prostitute maybe it'll go through like it's that kind yeah. of mentality but they i think they also had this um what you call first mover advantage and this is why i'm not sure what's going to happen to them so you know, do you know this, there's this rule in kind of uh, business where is if you're the first person into a market to fulfill a new need and, and you're a brand, you kind of establish yourself. And it's very hard to unseat the first mover. Basically, yeah. we can I can talk, you know, Microsoft was a potentially a first mover, right? Um, it has been unseated in a lot of ways, but like uh, Ford was a first mover, right, with the Model T. Uh, Apple was a first mo mover in hardware, actually. One, you know, one of the first uh, hardware companies, and and then in music and all these things. So it's very hard to disrupt a first mover. Um, and, I, and Lyft, I guess, is the alternative to Uber. And if you've taken a Lyft, they've also done a lot of bad things too. But one of the nice things is that they, you realize they have a more gender balanced uh, pool of drivers. Like I've and only ever had one female Uber driver. Yeah, you can leave it. You can leave a tip. Yeah, like. But it's it's just again it's that it's, it's that scale thing where Lyft often you have to wait longer for a car because less drivers use Lyft. So, right. Well, we don't even have it in Toronto. So actually, in Toronto, there's only one option for ride sharing, and that's Uber. Now, I just got back from Frankfurt in Germany, and there they banned Uber. Right. So there's 
and there's zero taxis too. <laughs> I mean, there are there are taxis, but they're like very hard to find. You're like, so you know, you're you're thinking to yourself, oh, this is what the old world was like. But there. they have good public transportation. And, and of course, you just figured out. I, I walk. Yeah, they have good public transportation. That's kind of the answer to to the problem that we don't want. You know, that's the no one wants to say I it. But hey, if with, we just like had great yeah, public transportation, I think public transportation is kind of hard when you're new to a city. So if you're living there, you understand all which line you should take and how to buy the ticket. <laughs> right, but if you're right. so tired from the airport, then to have a worldwide brand and you just open the app and it works anywhere around the world. Yeah, and that's why as an artist, it's been really useful for me to use Uber, actually, because I would I might go somewhere where I don't speak the language. I need to get, uh, you know, from here to there or to the airport at like 4 a.m. or some ridiculous thing that I, a situation that I find myself in. And Uber makes it very easy to do that. Um, so you just enter the address and, and you go. It, kind of it's also funny, this sort of uh, uh, the, the creative class of artists who are often very poor but still... Uh, take taxis in every country and and always eat out i remember meeting artists when i was young and taking a taxi in the netherlands is like extreme luxury you just go on the bike no matter what the weather and maybe if it's under a certain temperature you take the bus but to take a taxi is so decadent what is it your wedding day (laughs) yeah so i remember meeting artists and they were taking taxis and they were having brunch and and lunch and dinner (laughs) outside i thought these guys must be super rich i should become an artist this sounds then it turns out they weren't they were just spending everything (laughs) yeah Yeah, right they just had zero savings no retirement (laughs) (laughs) yeah but uh, yeah it's just another way of living but i think it's becoming more common now, and, and the cost of a, a rideshare is, if you're with two people, it's often cheaper than taking two subway tickets. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, if you do Uber Pool, uh, sometimes it's criminally low, the price, like $3 to get. In, in L.A., I know and this you is know, like the And you know when you see it that, like, okay, this is not fair, but it's yeah. really chill. Yeah, exactly. And I think for a while, Uber Pool, no one would even get in the ride with you. So you would be getting half price for... Mm-hmm. But now I notice there's well, always they're losing someone. money also. They, I mean, it's yeah. all about growth. It's not about uh, profit. Yeah. But yeah, this delete Uber thing, I think, was really fun to see because in an era of, you know, where software is so... E- like, it's so easy to grow, right? That, you know, when we all downloaded Uber, it happened very quickly overnight, right? We can't imagine the mm-hmm. before and after. But it's also so quick to remove yeah. and sort of displace, you know? Well, they, it, all the systems want to be sticky. So, for example, the, the iPhone, a lot of people are curious about Android, but they love iMessage so much. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work on Android, so that's that's what you call sticky. And how sticky is Uber? It's it's really easy to install the next app. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if there is an alternative in your neighborhood, it's as simple as like deleting or just tapping on the other icon, right? Like the friction yeah. between. But I I must say that if you use the other service and it turns out the waiting time is double mm-hmm. because there's fewer cars. And that's then two minutes instead two of th- one minute, right? <laughs> and then like, after two like, or three times and you're cold yeah. and you're outside and you're like, uh, so in that sense, that's the, the tricky thing with software. It just works better when it's a monopoly. Mm-hmm. Facebook works better when all your friends are on it. Amazon works better when they sell everything. You're yeah. not going to go to a competitor and sign up again and put your credit card details. And it turns out they have half the inventory. Yeah, that's the like law of network. I don't think that's what the actual law is called, but the law and of network the same is the with, value with increases fairs, with the density yeah, of the and, network. And it's the same yeah. with art institutions, where yeah. uh, 
if I travel to a city and I have uh, one or two days off, I'll go to the museums because I'll see a large amount of, of really good works. Mm-hmm. Instead, if you go to small uh, artist-run spaces, you would have to go to a lot of them to see the same amount of works. And so I see what you're saying. You only yeah. have a day. and So that's that's that scale thing where, mm-hmm. I, of course, I'm more interested in independent culture, but I only have a day and I want to see some really great works. So did you delete Uber or not? That's my, my bottom line question for you. No, I reinstalled Lyft, and so I tried it a few times again. But mm-hmm. I, I, I must say, I really I walk almost everything, so it's very rare that I use. Yeah. The- so Lyft is raising though a ton of money right now just to com- you know for the, because there's this opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in the in the flames of Uber, they're trying to raise like five hundred million dollars to uh, to become the the new winner. But I, I actually am very skeptical that it's going to work out. I think that there's this first mover advantage. And like you said, the experience it, it, has it to might, double. Yeah, it might result in that they, you know, there was the delete my Uber hashtag on various mm-hmm. social media. Yeah, only so 200,000 people deleted, but I think that's still quite a lot. Yeah, but how soon do they reinstall it? And it, maybe they'll find out that, okay, people appreciate us for the asshole attitude. They actually mm-hmm. think it's cool. And then it becomes, oh, we're going to we're gonna outdo the asshole, but we're going to really, <laughs> okay, we, we only just started. I was just very excited by that, though. It's like a... And even though it's just such a small gesture, it's like it's kind of pathetic that that's like our resistance. <laughs> it's like Del- deleting an I'm app deleting now. That's like, yeah. like the in the nineteen in the nineteen sixties, they'd like take people hostage, firebomb. <laughs> no, but I, I like, agree. I agree that sometimes a meme can uh, uh, like a it mm-hmm. can really be the tipping point. It's like all of a sudden, yeah. the, the the and it. It might be the tipping point where they're like, okay, asshole culture works and people don't care. Or it might be the tipping point where it's like, okay, we really have to be gender equal and treat our writers better because people do care. Yeah, we have to be uh, good public citizens, you know, because there's this like ego that comes out of the, the, the like capital, right? Like when, when a company's super successful and bad, then they're like, oh, being bad is, is how we got successful, right? Like they start <laughs> to equate that as the, as, as the method to the madness. But I'm reading a book by, I think I've mentioned on the air before, Trebor Schultz's book, uh, Uber Worked and Underpaid. And he has this, you know, he kind of like tears down Uber, but all of, it's not just Uber, all of the sharing economy companies, including ones that are kind Airbnb of, you think, and- yeah, Airbnb, you think of them as positive, but they're creating quite, because things have changed so quickly. And I think it's not always, you know, even if Uber were good, they might also be bad because of the system's involved in um you know the way they produce value right but the, and then the back to art fairs it's just the same thing where mm-hmm. art fairs take let's say that the rent is so high that it's uh, they take half the profit of any mm-hmm. any gallery and mm-hmm. so uh, yeah it's it's a very no, complicated it's a, it, equation it, it, no i think actually it's a great comparison because uber you know has fa- is famous for like cutting the fares of its uh workers yeah, in uber, half overnight uber, well, right? if if you look at the history, Uber started as a black car service where people mm-hmm. used to have their a dedicated car and driver. Rich people have have that, and they're like, mm-hmm. "Well, I'm not using it most of the time. So if we all, if we all share a black car, uh, we're much better off." That that yeah. was the original idea. So it was a luxury thing, and then they started getting more and more drivers. They introduced Uber X because mm-hmm. you had Uber Black and Uber X, and now there's Uber Pool, and then we're like getting cheaper than public transportation. Right. 
Yeah, but it, you know the art fair. I feel like the art gallery, mind you, they've always just had the fifty percent, and, and then with the thirty percent discount for people. Yeah, yeah, like but how much of of their percentage goes to rent? That's the like because right. they're always in expensive cities. They have to be. Well, they're always yeah. They're, that's their argument, right? Like we have a lot of costs, but Uber actually, I mean, doesn't really have any costs as a software company. The logistics, even though that said, well, they spend they, a lot on lawyers, I guess. <laughs> yeah, they they still haven't made a profit as a company, right? They're still yeah. unprofitable, but that's part of how all startups work. You're under leveraging or under investing. ROI, baby. Yeah, you want to get that. Well, Amazon, for example, only just ma- started to make money. I think uh, two years ago or a year ago, they, they showed their first profitable quarter. So it's supposed, you know, that's supposedly because growth at all costs is what these companies are about. But I think, you know, in this book I was mentioning, Uber worked and underpaid. There's this. And there's also just in general in the software world, just because I live in that world, there's momentum now towards sustainable operations or sustainable growth. And you hear this in conversations. Oh, yeah, we just really had the Snap Inc. Uh, IPO, which is also, it was a, it was a thing where <laughs> the opposite. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I was really hopeful that was going to go down in flames, but actually the stock's already nearly double. Someone, uh, someone, I think it was on The Verge where they said that that IPO was the equivalent of wearing uh, sweatpants where you just don't care. You just stop caring what people think of you. <laughs> and it, it, it really showed that all the investors didn't even use the app. They're they don't even know old. what's going on. Yeah, they're like, oh, no, it's a hot new thing. <laughs> yeah, it's hot, it's new stock. It's often but, the sign of an e- economic crisis coming when people invest recklessly. That's true, yeah. But, you know, because when Twitter IPO'd, it did very poorly and then has continued to do poorly. But that was in a much leaner time, right? And maybe mm. we're swinging back towards deregulation and the bank banking sector be doing well and people we're investing in for a in wild it. ride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're into yeah, well we're we're probably going to be okay but other people won't. Um yeah, so I think uh yeah, in this book though, you know, and and in in general in the, in the software industry there's this idea that, that's tending toward like cooperating, low growth, like kind of collective action and and I find it kind of interesting because it's a, it's a more sophisticated conversation that's happened previously around you you know is it growth at growth at all costs is that what we're here to do and the art world i think has given up you often talk about like it's just for a small group of people right like mm-hmm. and even among artists but the group right? of people is so much bigger than it was if if you compare it to the 50s yeah that's a good point so the amount you, of of museum goers the amount of magazines the amount of artists the amount of schools and everything is a lot more well it does double back on you know seeing the verge cover you know armory to me is like you know well i think if you have a bit of history there's a cover of time magazine with the dali on it mm-hmm. from 1940 something yeah so and 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 you mentioned British tabloids, which also also always <laughs> they always cover it. Yeah, but they cover but, it from a negative point of view. This yeah. article was not negative. Yeah. And I so by the way, I scrolled down to the bottom and I expected to read comments that were like, "These idiot artists, what do they think they're doing?" Now? <laughs> and there were no comments. Um, and I which. And I don't know. I, I was if I had found a positive comment though, then I would have been like, "Whoa, what is going on here? I'm living mm-hmm. in a bizarre world. What's going on? <laughs> Do people actually like this?" And I just got back from you know Germany, where I was presenting actually at a like a colloquium on social research. <laughs> Seems like so like not art. It's so not art world. 
but they actually put together an art exhibition about their papers as researchers. Now, the art quality was, of course, like ridiculously low, but the passion and and mm. their feeling was that artists communicate in a way that, you know, text and writer, yeah. writing just yeah. can't. And so after I presented, I presented this like I, I did a performance uh, inspired by one of the papers a lot of people came out and said, wow, it's amazing. Like the way you were able to take that research and make it into comedy. And then it still like was critical. But one of the nicest compliments is like this very conservative person that was on my panel. She came up after and she's like, you know what? I was very skeptical in the planning stage. In fact, I was, I was angry and against us, including art within this context. (laughs) But after seeing you, you, what you did, I mean, you've changed my mind completely. (laughs) Art can change the world, you know, or, or it can, make this more accessible to more mm. people because they're dealing with the same accessibility problem right they're writing sometimes you know like it's just impossible I, for most people to comprehend yeah yeah exactly and they're publishing in these obscure journals and they want to reach more people because actually their research is incredible it's really inspiring they're often discovering they're things that, better, uh, you don't think they would be better off collaborating with designers than with artists um, that's a good question. I mean, I didn't bring that up because I kind of operate in both modes. I brought it up. I was, and it's true. A lot of the conversations I was having throughout the conference were about design research because I do design research and then I apply that against my art practice mm-hmm. and running a design team. It's all research all the time. Yeah, and we use almost all the same theory and. I was like, you know, in the corporate world, you could be paid well for this. And they're like, what? Really? People value, <laughs> People value what we're doing? And I, it was almost like having a conversation with another artist. Um, it is really refreshing but, you know, stepping into these different worlds. It is. And what you realize is that, you know, kind of there's common goals, common interests, common needs, common desires, common failures. Um, and I love that because it makes... It, it inspires me anyway, because I realized that, you know, in same thing with the tech sector, right? All these sociology, like people are not that different, no matter what circle you're in. They're kind of mm-hmm. like Kalanick. Is that is that how to pronounce his name? The Uber CEO? Yeah, Kalanick. <laughs> it sounds like a Kalanick, which is like, isn't that like a yeah. rectal? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> rectal cleanse, yeah. Rectal cleanse. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like this rectal cleanse of a CEO. <laughs> uh, he's just like a bad actor. Like if he was at this sociology conference, he would be the egotistical kind of egotistic, uh, you know, full of himself, uh, academic rock star. Right? Um, he would be like wearing sunglasses after I, being hungover. He's like, I'm, I'm telling you, bad you know? guys in movies are usually more interesting than the hero. It's uh, more interesting people, because pe- they're more flawed, maybe. Yeah, the, like the Joker is more interesting than Batman. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're more interesting psychologically in some way. Like, in I, I, I once more did entertaining. this. Well, like, uh, there was a. I had this sort of saying that, like, there. I did an article once for the Guardian. It's not a humble brag at all. It was just like lucky enough to get to do an interview with the Guardian, and it was about. We ended up talking about trolls or internet trolls and because I had listened to a podcast, I think, where they followed up with a troll, like someone who had just done evil stuff on the internet, right? Like a bully, an internet bully where someone had like stalked someone and then like pretended to be their dead father. And uh, yeah, like because it was actually, a com- it's a common format, Raph. <laughs> you know, the old dead father routine. Yeah. Anyway. But in that uh, when in that follow up, they discovered this person was just incredibly vulnerable, right? And felt like this was their way of uh, I don't know having contact with other asserting humans, asserting power, asserting power. Yeah, they were 
they were bullied. You know, it's always this, and I'm not trying to, you know, I'm say I'm not saying Kalanick, uh, you know, is, is super vulnerable, but probably there is a vulnerability. Like probably if you and I met him, I'm sure he's under stress. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. I just heard he's hiring a co-CEO, but uh, there's something that happened, something fragile there that's fascinating. And uh, I don't know. I like to look straight into the sun and see. If there's mm. like some humanity there, right? And mm-hmm. if we can get, if you could turn that around, it do would you be do really the other way too? Where you're like, I think Gandhi had some flaws, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mother Teresa, you know what? That sacrifice at, at what cost? I mean, come yeah, on. we can't. I read <laughs> anyway. some articles yeah, about I, 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 uh, Mother I Teresa know. being selfish and 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 exploiting poor people and uh, for attention. Yeah, but there's vulnerability, I guess, in there's every troll. Is my yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, there's yeah, there's vulnerability in every hero, right? We all see these heroes fall, but we also see the villain kind of sometimes turn it around. So I'm what I'd like to see Uber do is like become a role model. Like that that would be like that would be the best thing. I mean, maybe the best thing would be they just they're gone forever, but what if they innovated labor practices? What if he, you know, they became like a uh, social justice advocates in the workplace. <laughs> you have to believe that you can turn people around. It's the same thing. No, with- but th- there would be a good thing where it, it turns out that, okay, public opinion matters and it, yeah. it's a competitive advantage. So we don't even care about our employees, but if we make mm-hmm. make them earn more, then people will use the service more. Because don't forget, this was true of every industry before the ones that we're talking about now. Like, there's this famous book by Upton Sinclair about the stockyards in Chicago, right, where they processed meat. It was kind of a fictional documentary account. It was, I mean, it's a really good book called The Jungle. Um, And that changed labor practice laws uh, in Chicago stockyards. And that became a revolution in labor practices across the whole, all of the United States, right? So in these moments of crisis, we have this kind of, I just wanted to say this opportunity. That was um, like 150 years ago. Okay. Yeah. The good Um, old days. The good, the good old days when you could like have your arm chopped off uh, in the <laughs> stockyards, and you know there was ten guys ready to replace you. <laughs> if you've never read *The Jungle*, it's a great book. It's like uh, it's a beautiful painting in a way. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's just like there are these moments you know, where it, you know unions didn't always exist, and then they did, and then they became too powerful, and then they sort of you know they dissolved a little bit. But you know, there's a moment now where we can make change. I think whenever you see this kind of aggressive. Yeah, counter swing happening. So anyway, uh, stereos, Ralph. <laughs> this is the yeah. contract. Do we the have contra- time? Yeah, I think. Well, we have time to briefly. Well, since uh, I just thought we've been getting a lot of field recordings from friends and uh, and and listeners. Yeah. Uh, so that's awesome. A few people told me, "Oh, I have a great field recording, but I still have to email it to you." So if you're listening, hit the email button. It's not that hard. <laughs> you can do it. Yeah, because we, oh, we really love. I mean, we love hearing them. They're so yeah. good. Well, I ran into Evan Roth, and he's like, "Oh, I have these." But great while while listening to phone, things, I just have to email them. I yeah. thought that was weird. And, and, how, and how are you, dude? Hmm, sounds like he's lying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, some, yeah, someone yeah, messaged yeah. me on Instagram and and said, "I have a." But they can't send an audio file on Instagram. Well, email we seems never like tell a barrier any. for a lot of people. Maybe some well, people have have an email inbox that is so full of nightmare uh, that they just don't dare open it. But we don't tell anyone our email address. I'm always like, how do these people find us, actually? Because we're terrible well, at communicating. There's a contact page on my website. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess on yeah. my website, too. Sometimes so people message me on social networks and say, I, I can't find your email address. But there's a very simple 
Just right. newraphael.com <laughs> slash contact. It's all there. Do you, yeah, do you use Google? I guess that's... Uh, yeah, well, anyway. So they can... And they could reach us over Twitter, too, uh, yeah. which is like the... So, but, so since we have an audio-savvy audience, I was wondering... Um, what do you, do you use wireless audio at home? Well, you need wireless audio. Yeah. Do I use it? Um. So yeah. So you want, but I want to understand. What do you want to do here? You want a great stereo system? What are you going to no, do? I, are I you just a, listen, listening okay to speakers. ambient audio? No, I have okay speakers, and the, the it's connected with a cable to my computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like this idea of everything wireless. But then I'm like, should I have a Sonos connector or a Bluetooth or AirPlay? Mm-hmm. or Chrome, Chromecast audio, uh, whatever. And it, it just so far, the things I tested at people's homes, Bluetooth and AirPlay, were kind of finicky, and they would drop every now and then. So yeah. I don't know if somebody has... But Sonos is kind of... You're not actually streaming audio from your computer to the Sonos. You're just telling the Sonos to pick it up from Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. And you wouldn't wear like wireless headphones and like. I, or I ordered the the AirPods, but uh, they yeah. haven't arrived yet. But I like to listen to music uh, on speakers. Okay. Yeah, but do you listen okay, to music yeah. at home? So, I do, and the way I do it is with um, like Spotify has this feature where you can like. So I have a, a great sound system that I found in the trash, as I've said before, uh, hooked up to a PC, and then you can just like choose that PC as the source. So Spotify oh, fixed I this see. by just like using yeah, the yeah. cloud. And I think this that way there's no lag. I can yeah, control yeah, it from yeah. my phone. For me, for me, it's more that I'm, I'm on my computer working and I listen to music while I work, but I might also listen to music either from iTunes or from Bandcamp in the browser, or I'm editing mm-hmm. audio, and I also want that to be on the speakers. So it, it's not like a living room where you come in and you're like, oh, let's turn on the radio. Yeah. And so for that solution, I just have a little Bluetooth speaker. I assume that's what people are going to tell you. Get a Bluetooth receiver. Yeah. Uh, and, but and does sometimes it connect that okay does drop. or it drops? It doesn't drop, but sometimes it'll be like, I have to press pair again or like I have to reconnect or okay. go into the device. And it's like, why, why doesn't this just work? Like as soon as I turn it on, it should just like. Yeah, and then connect. once one device is connected, if you want to connect another device, you have to hit the pairing button again. Yeah, once one device, yeah, yeah, exactly. And some, they don't. Some do offer multiple pairs, right? So okay. some can only have one pair at a time. But there's a way that they, they they'll have a memory of like four, and they go okay. to the next one, and then the next one, and the next one. Mm. So it depends. But the cheapest ones can only remember like one at a time, <laughs> or yeah. in you know then it, so. Yeah, you don't want that. I mean, but we've all been in a car stereo situation where you rented a car. Maybe we haven't. And you try oh, and pair your phone. Because you can't configure it while you drive. It, tells, it says, no, you cannot add a new device while driving. And then you have to stop and add a new yeah. device. Yeah. And maybe there's like, there's usually like a hundred other people's phones in there, which are always like, hmm, security and risk. Then it, but anyway, and then you like, connect yeah, your phone and, and, and it starts to say, should I download all the photos? <laughs> Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah, it's yeah. just a mess. So Bluetooth actually uh, is kind of widely, I think, in tech thought of as like this failed standard, right? Like it never yeah. quite lived up to the expectations. I can remember so when So I thought everyone... AirPlay would be cool, but then I was at a friend's and that didn't work so well either. Uh, AirPlay's worse by far, I think. Like we have our office set up with all these like Apple TVs for AirPlay, or we did. And like just so you could present without hooking into a projector or play audio. And like 
it would always just end up on the iTunes store screen. <laughs> it's like you're in a serious meeting. It's like you're looking at the top iTunes downloads. It, it would be like Candy Crush. And, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And you're like, what is this? I just want to show my PowerPoint. So you're not, you're not a fan um, of AirPlay? It's just like they haven't continued to support it. But however, what they did with their new uh, W1 chip on the AirPods, it's like they augmented Bluetooth. So they paired Bluetooth with another chip. They're like, okay, well, we'll take this Bluetooth for the audio, but the pairing will happen with this, like, we'll put, like, who knows how much energy and, you know, engineering they put into just, like, improving Bluetooth with a second chip. And have you tried them? No, but everyone I've heard, uh, everyone, like, a bunch of people at work have them say that it's just, it works, it's really seamless. I would love to see that, like, built into speaker systems, though. Yeah. Um, It reminds me of, like, in... Video. We've mentioned Constant Dullard's like player that he created, the Dulltech player it just for works. synchronized video. Yeah, it just works. But for audio, um, there's still just like not a wireless well, standard also, that just works. The, the funny thing that uh, in the 70s and 80s, it, every every cool person would have to have a great stereo. That yeah. was like it, it, even if you see old Seinfeld episodes, he has huge speakers in his tiny apartment. <laughs> right. That was yeah. like if you didn't have big speakers, yeah, you were an animal. Well, tech nerd, it was like the tech nerd of the 70s was a stereo yeah, but even, or audio Yeah, even nerd. non-tech nerd, everybody just had a good stereo system that right. was, you had to, otherwise your house was not complete. You need a couch right. and a stereo. And TVs were small. And now TVs are huge and everybody has a sound bar under the TV, <laughs> right. which is not really good for music. No. And if you go to Best Buy or any store, they don't really have audio amplifiers. They just have receivers that mm-hmm. connect to five one speaker systems. But no right. one listens and people just listen to music on jam boxes and like tiny speakers. Yeah. My my here's the example. My parents have a Bang and Olufsen uh four speaker system surround. Mm, nice. And so whenever you watch a movie or watch the news, the sound is amazing. And my mom has her computer in the living room with Spotify and she has a tiny speaker next to it connected yeah, yeah. with a little headphone jack because connecting it to the uh, Bang & Olufsen system you need some proprietary cables so they just never got around to do that <laughs> right of course you know, <laughs> so they have that. a $40,000 sound system but she listens to all the music on a $200 speaker my parents also have like this handmade like artisanal <laughs> audio system and I just put a little Bluetooth receiver on it plug that in um, and it and made so them they- happy yeah, like well, I'm but the only one who uses it. It's just for when I'm over. Reduces the music quality where the, it does. That's right. Bluetooth has lesser quality. It's true. I mean, this is it's funny too because Tidal, as like a as a music company, it claims to have higher quality audio. Spotify is about to come out with lossless audio. Audio quality is kind of coming back as a thing, but for yeah. a while it was just like for universal a while it was convenience. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. For a while it was just convenience, yeah. and rightly so because it was like. You know, I want to listen to this album. Oh, I have it on CD. No, I only have it on tape. It was like, you know, form, different formats. I, that's not hooked up to the stereo like you're talking about, right? But yeah. Well, I, it, I've, I, you, always, I always grew up with good stereos, the, the hand-me-downs from my parents. But, but it sounds like what uh, you would like is just to walk into your apartment. This is the fantasy that they always claim. And the music you love just starts playing. <laughs> no, no, no. Like I'm not, I really, I, this idea of that uh, the computer knows better than you what to play, I don't believe in that. But, <laughs> But I wanted be, to get back a few, a few steps that um, my stepdad used to live in Denver, Colorado, and it was mm-hmm. the 70s, and it was the Eagles. It was all about oh, good, yeah. good stereo. Living so it he up brought at the Hotel back California. These, yeah, <laughs> and he brought these back these huge speakers that I then had my whole uh, adolescence and college life and yeah. whatever. 
a great great speakers and a great amplifier. And then I started moving around, and of course, it's too heavy to, to carry around. So I arrived in New York. I thought, I'm going to be here for a while. I should get a good stereo. Yeah. And uh, there's a really legendary stereo store uh, in Soho. So I went there. It's called In Living Stereo, and it's all tube amps and custom speakers. And so I'm there, and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to invest because it, it might last 40 years, you know, mm-hmm. it, good sound. And so I, I go in, and then uh, the salesman says, hi, how are you? I'm like, I'm interested in a stereo. <laughs> Who are you? What, 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 what are you about? Sit down. Do you want some champagne? <laughs> really? And I started to feel really old, and he's like, Okay, so tell me about yourself. What, are, what, 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 what's your passion? And <laughs> it was really weird. And, and so he sits me down. It and sounds then like he's a like, gallery. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Because it's it's stereos in, in that price range. And then he starts to say, "Well, uh, how do you listen to your music? Is it vinyl?" I'm like, uh, "No, computer." Okay, D- do you use flax? Is it all? No, a lot of stuff on YouTube. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so and then immediately he, his respect for you is falling yeah it's like oops and so he makes this setup with uh, a preamp and an equalizer and all, all the different things and it, a reasonable setup that was not too because the price range there for a setup is from from 5,000 to half a million or so. it's, oh my god it's ridiculous yeah and but he made this setup and the sound was so crisp and clean that it was very uncomfortable i heard he would put on dire straits because that's the audiophile quality yeah and and it's it's too much detail and i like it a bit it's more like mushy H- it's a little bit like hd video when it first came along you could yeah see all the i don't want to see all the wrinkles no yeah. no no so it hmm. it made me feel really old being in that store and then i just went back i just want a regular that's ironic too, because your hearing is probably worse than when you were young. You know, like that. Yeah, in, like true. you're now seeking this ultimate audio experience. I mean, for yeah. me, I'm a bit of a. I've always believed that technology is trash, and like I said, I found my stereo system in the trash. So I'm not. I'm not investing in it the same way you are. I'm just like whatever I can find. And but it does remind me when I was younger, whatever I could find was there was this one moment when I was in, I was in first year college. I think I must have been like 19 years old. And this like van was parked on the street, and they're like, "Hey, kid, come over here, check this out." <laughs> and they're like, they opened up the back, like, and it was all these like big, like kind of, you know, like when they cover speakers in that like kind of carpet material. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were nice, and they like it had a huge woofer. Like the woofer was bigger than my my head. It was like you know, I don't know, it was like a, as big as a bass drum. And I was like, "Whoa." What are these? And they're like, we're selling. We got. We, you know, our boss sent us down here. The, the, we've got these speakers. We're supposed to deliver them, and instead, we're selling them really cheap. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> fell for this trick. But what's crazy is I was like, okay, was the box I'll get- filled with bricks. Uh, no, they, they were out in the open. They weren't even in boxes. They were legit okay. speakers. So like, I was like, oh wow, yeah, let's get one. Can you? And and so I, and I was like, but I don't have enough money. I have to go to the bank machine. Can you give me a lift there? And so I got into this van, <laughs> and they took me to a bank machine. How old were you? I was 19. Then I couldn't okay. get, like, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, I was, and then I couldn't get money out of the machine. And I was like, you know what? And they're like, oh, yeah. I mean, I have enough. So I had enough money for one that I could get out of the machine. And I was like, so I started to ha- haggle with them. And then they're like, well, you know, if, you should really have two. And I was like, yeah, but I don't have enough money. But if we go to my house, I think I could find some money there. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm like, let's drive across town. So we drove across town to my house. They helped me into my house with the speaker. At least like these two shady guys. And I like start scrounging around for money. And I, I, I couldn't find any actually. So I, 
But what's crazy is they, we resigned to the fact that I could only afford this one speaker. We exchanged this the, the money for this one speaker, and they left. But what I know, obviously, in retrospect, <laughs> so you ended is these up were with like a mono sound system. Yeah, and this huge speaker which I had for many years. But these like what are what were essentially thieves <laughs> that had like <laughs> stolen these speakers were then like helping me move them around the city. <laughs> Like I wasted so much um, of their time. I let them into my parents' house. I don't know. In retrospect, that's such an idiot. It, I'm I'm not trying to be misogynist as, as usual, but <laughs> have you have you ever met a girl who's interested in stereos? Uh, well, to the extent where they'd invite thieves into their like, I was really into having good. Yeah, sound that's what I mean. But and it was to a, listen anytime, to MP3s. I mean, it's the same. Yeah. Whenever Christina wants to see shoes, I'm like, they all look fine to me. Yeah, <laughs> and and she will always mention that person. Oh, she was wearing such amazing shoes. I mean, I it's never only noticed. Yeah, the girl's I mean, shoes. I know, I do know women who are like audio files or uh, artists that work with audio, and so that yeah. that would be the exception. But okay. yeah, I think that that, that stereotype. But if I'm like, let's go true. see a stereo store, and it's like, mm-hmm. oh no. Yeah, I get very excited about. It. I think that's an old like cliche, but it's true in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, uh, I feel uh, like like women could be excited about a nice car. Yeah, but stereos, no. Kristen will get really excited if like the bass is really high on a song she loves. <laughs> okay. Like, it's more about the music than it is about the yeah. equipment. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. I can't comment on her, <laughs> on her yeah. taste there. But uh, yeah, it certainly does like in the 1970s, the image of a guy with a big mustache, uh, two guys like kind of nodding at stereo equipment. The the weirdest audiophile thing to me is that the speakers are very directional. So you have to sit in a certain chair in a room Mm -hmm. to listen to the music. And of course, you're listening to music while you're cooking and you're moving around and you're cleaning up the garage and all that stuff. But audiophiles are like no you put a chair and you put the, the speakers exactly in those positions and that's where you listen to the music well that's because you're supposed to be trying to get the same spatial experience as if you were there live and i mean we're running out of time in this podcast i think to talk about like the the complexity of that but that's really about trying it's like documentation of a performance you're trying to get as close or virtual reality for audio right mm-hmm. as close to the actual performance yeah. as you can because van yeah. morrison is dead and you want to listen you know you want to feel like you're there again yeah. um mm-hmm. but i have a surround sound system and i always turn that feature off because i can't get it quite right the settings <laughs> so <laughs> it always ends up like there's reverb in my house and i feel like i'm in an echo like there's all these effects it's so complicated maybe i'm not like yeah. as technically into it as i should be but and do you have a big movie setup? Um, like, it's just the same thing. It's like set to, you know, uh, the basic settings, surround settings. And, uh, like I, I found and, this. And you turn off the, the soap opera effect on your TV. Yeah. Yeah. Kristen hates that too. Yeah. So I, yeah, yeah I turn off the fast, mo- true motion effects and yeah. Movies are kind of what it's, but we have a big subwoofer, which is like, but it, and, it and scares in terms me of screen, when it's, are you, loud. are you like, I need a 4k screen? Yeah, yeah, we have like a yeah 4K screen from a show. Like whatever equipment I bought for shows is just like okay, ends that's up how in. it works. <laughs> that's yeah. how it works. Yeah, that's the like yeah. benefit. That's the, one of the perks of, of yeah. being in the biz. Anyway, um, yeah. So I guess for our listeners, like, what should Raphael? Uh, <laughs> what should he? Have? And what is which, the price which point? Which Fi- audio solution? You said five thousand dollars, which is my my budget for a show for the entire year. That would be like a solo show budget. <laughs> would be like is what? like. Is, is that your budget? For a Bluetooth Just, receiver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you were almost willing to spend that at this crazy store. So, 
Yeah, I, I would if it had sounded good, but it just sounded awful. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, okay, okay. Yeah. So, because the recommendation might. I me- listen to music the- about eight hours a day, I think. So. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, because the-, the recommendation might come down that hey, you know what you need is a jam box. <laughs> you've got to be, you got to be yeah. ready for this like Bluetooth jam box. It's the uh, future, bro. It's the yeah. future. <laughs> Most people recommend uh, like Sonos music players, but you said that didn't work out. Anyway, we're gonna get some recommendations, and then we can. Yeah. Maybe you could like and, and- try them all out. Like buy them yeah, all and we, return we can them. Yeah, we can be that kind of podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like Wirecutter. Do you use Wirecutter, this website where they compare? It's the best comparison site. Okay, I'll try it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, yeah. I, I check out Wirecutter. I, d- I wanted to talk to you because you mentioned AirPlay before, but apparently it doesn't work, so I'll, I'll try Bluetooth. Because there's some yeah. better Bluetooth stuff now. Yeah. Okay, so that's a good segue into our audio recording field for recording. this week, <laughs> field recording, which is... Uh, <laughs> it's another kind of a home appliance, I think, right? Yeah, it's it's exactly the the kind of thing we all have. This tiny mic on our phone, which is not the best, but we always have it with us, so that makes it the best mic. Yeah, but uh, the recording this week is of a dishwasher, I, I believe. Yeah, the the um, recorder is Mark Andre Weibazan from Germany. Mm-hmm. He's a iOS developer. And um, he has a home office right next to the kitchen, and he's often working. And he says the feeling of the dishwasher is really comforting, or it feels really chill. This sort it of also has this, constant rhythm. Yeah, and it has this like rhythmic sound. It sounds like a. It almost sounds like um, experimental music <laughs> in a way. Like yeah. I feel like I've been to shows and I've heard this dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you for sending in the dishwasher sounds. Uh, listen to it, and uh, we'll see everybody. We'll hear everybody next week. Great. Um, yep. Yeah. Thanks for staying with us with, through this hodgepodge for you know almost an hour and fifteen minutes here. <laughs> Let's uh, leave on this the, with the soothing sounds of a dishwasher. Bye. Bye.